Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash. I'm the host of the Articulate Fly, and tonight I'm joined by soft tackle aficionado Alan McGee. Welcome to the show, Alan. Hi, thanks, Marvin. Yeah, looking forward to it. And before we get going, I want to uh, give a shout out to tonight's sponsor. Uh, like we have the last few times, it's our friends at the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival, and that event will be held March 23rd and 24th in Plano, Texas. And if you want more information, if you'll just go to our website at thearticulatefly.com and check out the events page, you'll get find out everything you need to know. So, Alan, I always ask all of my guests to share their earliest fishing memory with us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I don't have a specific memory in, in itself, but I, you know, I, I remember growing up in, in the 1970s and my grandparents had a farm in Missouri and my, I lived in the suburbs and, but we would go up to the farm every, almost every weekend, uh, you know, in the summer and, and all. And so, you know, I spent a lot of fishing time fishing when I was, you know, early, like four five, six, seven, eight years old. And I can't remember specific, I just, you know, how, when you're young like that, you can't target specific things. But basically, I, I do have a couple pictures of me with some nice bass when I was probably five years old. And I don't remember catching them, but I know I had them because I got the pictures. So, you know, but that was in the early 70s. And my, like I said, my uh, my parents weren't really fishermen or anything like that. My my grandmother was a pretty good fisherman. She she kind of gave taught me the ropes. It was a spin cast fishing. It wasn't fly fishing or anything, but it instilled with you know in me probably the love of nature basically, which is the you know cornerstone of all of it. I think is just getting started early actually, and and anyway getting out in nature, getting that you know love for it in your blood. You know that's really the most important thing about it for me. You know. No, I and. Um, yeah, when people start later in life, it's cool and all, but I think something about starting early, even if you don't, just being out there when you're young, gets in, even if you don't remember specific things, it's in your, it's in your DNA almost when you're growing up like that. It's, you know, very important. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And so when did you make the jump into the world of fly fishing? Yeah, well, I didn't start fly fishing probably until 1992 when I moved to, when I moved to the Southeast, because I'm from, I was from Kansas City, uh, Kansas and Missouri, which there's not a lot of fly, uh, trout fishing there. You know, it's, it's warm water fishing, but, um, but when I moved here, you know, I discovered, um, cold water trout fisheries and I'd really never fished for trout before, but I've been doing that since about 92, you know, and, uh, at first I started, uh, fly fishing just because that's why I figured, you know, that's the way to fish for trout really is what I, you know, reading through the literature and that's all, you know, better than the spin casting because imitation of the bugs was the most important thing as opposed to bass fishing where you're kind of imitating, you know, larger prey, so to speak, you know what I'm saying? So I wanted to do it the way it should be done. And so probably 1992 is when I started, first started fly fishing, but been fishing all my life really pretty much. Yeah. And as you got into the sport, who were um, some of the people that uh, helped you kind of figure things out? Mm. Well, you know, I didn't have a lot of, there. you know, basically I fished on my own a lot and, and I just, I just did a lot of practicing, but it was a lot of reading of books and hanging out in fly shops and, and just being, just immersing myself in it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know how that goes with fly fishing. I mean, you know, it, <laughs> once you start it and, it and it gets rolling, it's hard to, it gets, it just, you know, it's like a snowball, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And basically I didn't really have a lot of, a lot of mentors, so to speak, but my mentors were, were the books, you know, the books, you know, the literature, the history of the sport, you know, and just reading those and, and, 
I guess my mentors were, were the best, you know, fishermen because they were these guys who wrote these classic books, you know? Sure. Um, you know, I didn't really have a lot of, like I said, I took me, I had like one informal fly casting lesson by a guy and I don't even remember his name back, you know, when I first started. And after that, it was just basically just doing it on my own, really. Yeah. And I still do it that way now. I, I fish, a, I fish a lot alone. I like to be, you know, I like to go out on the river and travel, take trips on my own and just, you know, cause I like the solitude. That's part of the sport. That's the other thing I loved about it is just being, cause living in the city was just so busy and getting out in the rivers up in the mountains. It was good for the soul. So, you know, yeah, I can, yeah, yeah I can certainly agree with that. Can you think of some, uh, some titles of some of those books that kind of jump out at you that you oh, kind of yeah. keep close at hand? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I was, I was, I was looking at, I have, I'm sitting right next to my, my, my bookshelf here. And it's actually completely full and I've got books you know, on the floor and all, but, um, um, yeah. So some of the guys in the beginning, you know, it wasn't really so much, um, you know, basically I worked backwards in a way I started with some of the more modern people, but I'll, I'll start kind of in the beginning here with what I think was some of the most important. So I like that GM skews really got me into the, um, idea of using nymphs more than anybody probably in his book, the way of, of a trout with a fly is, is right next to me here right now. And, you know, he was such an innovator. You probably could put him as the first real fly nymph fly fisherman, at least that documented it and really studied it so much. And then, and then you go to the Americans like James Lysenring and Pete Heidi and um, the art of tying the wet fly and fishing the flimp was, was probably the most seminal book for me as far as, because, you know, I, I really learned about the wet fly from that book a lot. And um, it wasn't so much the English traditional stuff, but it was more like early American taking what they did in, in, in England and, 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 and putting it on the, Engl- on the American waters here. And it's funny because Pete Heidi's son is uh, Lance Heidi. When I was writing my first book, um, I, I didn't even know, you know, who he was or anything, but I found out that he did have a son and I sent him a few emails and, and now we're kind of pretty good friends, which is pretty incredible that I, you know, (laughs) read his father's work and now I know his son and all, which was kind of cool to, to be able to learn, you know, meet him and all. And then we have like Ray Bergman with, you know, books like trout and the wet fly of Bergman's, the winged wet flies in that book are pretty incredible. All the color plates are pretty mesmerizing talk about a lot of flies you know my books have a lot of flies in them but you look at trout sometime <laughs> um and then and then we frank sawyer you know he wasn't a wet fly fisherman but he was a deadly nymph fisherman and his book uh, nymphs and the trout was was really important for me his his theories about the induced take he only fished like two or three flies his whole pretty much career if you want to call it that but but his he fished them so well he didn't need a lot of patterns you know yeah that's that's and so yeah, that's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, he, you know, the original pheasant tail. We know he invented that, and um, but you know, and all it was was uh, copper wire and, and pheasant tail. It wasn't any other. He used the copper wire as the thread, and so he incorporated that. It was just a weighted fly, you know. Um, but um, but his 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 theory about the induced take was pretty important because I knew, you know, when I was fishing that there was something special about wet flies and how trout would attack them so to speak and how they you know and and you know the 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 fleeing prey and 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 and, um anyway but his his theory about the induced take was pretty important to me and about how you know you can entice a fish to take 
by presenting something right in front of them and making it look, even if they're not necessarily interested in feeding the induced take, just their, just the behavioral um, makeup of that idea. And then the whole time, actually, one of the first guys I read was Vince Marinero, even before I was into wet flies. And, you know, his, his work with dry flies and terrestrials on the Latour and all that. Actually, the first fishing trip I ever took was to the Latour in southern uh, Pennsylvania and to see where he fished. And um, just because I admired Vince Marinero so much. And so he was sort of combining the idea of the guys like uh, license ring and marinero together which kind of brings me up to today where i'm kind of combining dry fly and wet fly together in some ways you know um and then we can even talk about guys like memes of course with the soft tackle fly imitations book actually he came up with the term soft tackles in the early 70s and before that they were just called wet flies but um but he called them soft tackles and i like that term better because it not all soft tackles were wet flies you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so and that's why I call my, my flies soft tackles and not just wet flies because they're not just wet flies. And then we have Dave Hughes, of course, wet flies. Uh, his book is pretty classic book, wet flies and Davey Watton with, he, he hasn't really written books, but you know, he's written magazine articles, but he has some good DVDs out there that shows you his techniques. And then I liked guys like George Harvey and um, Joe Humphreys, which, which Joe Humphreys, in my opinion is, probably the best nymph fisherman who's ever lived. I mean, him and Frank Sawyer, I don't know, they're running, <laughs> but, um, Humphreys was his, his techniques, I mean, are, are just incredible to watch him nymph fishing. And then when it comes to dry fly fishing, some of the modern guys or Renee Harrop, I, I respect him a lot. He's got some pretty innovative stuff he's doing and he's been doing it for a long time. And then, um, Bob Quigley who fished out in California <clears throat> invented a lot of emerger patterns, you know, and so I guess that's kind of a short list of who I see as some of the, if I could only own those books, you'd probably be doing pretty good. Yeah, no, that's a pretty good, probably what, 12 or 15 volumes to have in your library. So, so you, you started fishing, uh, fly fishing really when you came to the Southeast, when did you get the fly time bug? Oh, you know, it took me a little while because, you know, I, I first just didn't think it fly tying was as important as I learned it, as I learned it is, you know, later on, but it took me maybe a couple of years and I was just buying flies and I didn't think that fly tying was, I just thought it was like a utilitarian thing. You know, I didn't think it was important in the aspect of, of the overall fly fishing um, and making one a better angler, which I know now it is. Um, but yeah, it took me a couple of years probably to start learning or, or wanting to tie flies, really. But once I started, literally almost the first day I started fly tying, I realized that how important it was. It felt like the rest of the puzzle was put in, in place. You know what I'm saying? Like I felt when I was tying flies, I would start thinking about fishing scenarios and about how that fly should be fished. I was thinking about, you know, fishing the fly more than when you were just on the water, you were able to think about that at home and study it and study the design of it and study the bugs more, you know, it got me more into bugs too, really. Yeah. And, and the entomology. Yeah. And so as you did you kind of self-teach yourself again by basically kind of going the book route? Um, or did you yeah. reach out and find yeah. people kind of in the Atlanta area yeah. to help you learn how to tie? I did it. I just did it myself. I, the first book I bought on fly tying was a uh, Randall Kaufman book. And I think it, I got it here. It was he? He did two. He did the tying dry flies and the tying nymphs book, and they were just step by step, you know, how tos. But they were really good, good photo photography in it. 
And just those techniques, basically, you know how it works, is once you learn basic techniques, you can just start, you know, start incorporating it into different patterns. Like you see a pattern, you can, you know what I'm saying? But Randall Kaufman's books were pretty important to me in fly tying because of the way the step photography he had in them. Very good step photography for each pattern, you know? Yeah, and what was your first vice? Um, well, I still have it. It's a regal. I have, the, I have about four or five regals, I guess. Um, just the standard regal, um, uh, jaw, the old, not the stain. I don't even have the stainless one. I got the old one and, uh, got a midge jaw too, but I like the regal vices. I learned on them and, um, I just find that I have good hook clearance around the whole hook. I can get my hand around it. I'm not interfering with any, uh, the, I don't really need the rotary vice for the t- kind of uh, tying I do. So yeah, regal vice is pretty much uh, very, what I use. Yeah, very cool. So you start tying. When did you get the soft tackle bug? Mm. Well, let's see. The year itself, I'm not sure. It was in my, uh, probably would have been in the late 90s, maybe like 99, 98, somewhere around in there. Um and so the way that worked was, well, I was out, I was on actually on the Bigwood River in Idaho and I was fishing, just nymph fishing there. And somehow, somewhere I'd gotten a soft tackle pheasant tail nymph in my fly box. I don't think I tied it, but I might have, but I don't think I did. But um, I had it in there and I started fishing it that day and I'd really never fished a soft tackle nymphs before I was fishing, you know, your standard Prince nymphs and, you know, gold rib hairs, ears, things like that. And anyway, this, this, this soft tackle fly, it was a nymph, but I fished it, you know, it had, it had movement on it basically. And the partridge collar, you know, it was just something about it where I couldn't fish it wrong, you know? And I, and I just, I was catching more fish that day than I'd ever caught before. And I only had that one fly. And at the end of the day, it was all torn up. I don't even know if I lost it or what, but I tried to, I, that next day I went into a fly shop and in Sun Valley and I tried to find another one like it and no one had another, you know, they, they didn't carry them basically. And so that's when I got, you know, I was like, well, I got to start tying. Yeah. And I guess that's really now, now that you remind, that's when I started tying. That's when I got the urge to start tying is when I realized that, you know, there's things in fly shops don't have everything you need. You know what I'm trying to say? Or, or they don't have, if you, if you find a style you want to do, you can kind of create your own, your own, your own methods, you know? Yeah. No, I've, and so, yeah, I've made that mistake. I've been on the fire hole and not had any Miller, couldn't find a Miller caddis anywhere in West Yellowstone. Right. And you're like, why didn't mm-hmm. I bring my tying kit with me? Um, uh, so I, right. I, I completely understand yeah. that problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, partic- particularly for some of those more selective waters where, you know, you really do need to dial the pattern in a little bit. Oh yeah. You know, it can be this, just a little size difference. I mean, or, you know, or color or, or just really, um, just the emerging, you know, the, the life stage that, that the fly shop might not have and, or the way you want to fish that life stage, you know what I'm trying to say? And, um, so I basically, yeah, I like to have my own, my own, uh, fly shop in my, in my vest with me when it comes to flies, that is, you know, um, but you know, I, I like to look through fly shops and see what they have. Sometimes you'll get good at, you know, specific patterns for specific waters and all, but, um, it's pretty much just uh, knowing, you know, after you have a certain amount of experience, you realize, yeah, you know, if you carry enough, <laughs> enough flies, you're going to have something that's similar. And then what happens at the end of the day, if I'll go back to my hotel if I'm on a trip or wherever I am and, 
and I'll tie up more, you know, specifically what I'm trying to get out of it. And that's the advantage of fly tying. You know, you don't have to go to the fly shop and look for things. You know, if you have the materials, you can create them for yourself, you know, specifically how you need it. Yeah, and so so you, you kind of get the tying bug and you're interested in soft tackle. So as you sort of moved in that direction, did you kind of go back to the early history of soft tackles and work forward? Or did you just kind of look at the techniques and the properties of those flies and kind of incorporate them into kind of the modern day fly, fly tying? Mm, at first, I was probably more kind of traditional, but I was always doing, when I would tie my own flies, I wouldn't, you know, I was trying to kind of make them different in the beginning, but I was probably copying more older patterns at first. Um, but I would say that I've always, after a while you get kind of, here's, here's the thing about it too, is you get kind of bored tying the same things, you know what I'm trying to say? And you want to try new things and you don't just feel like, you know, the, 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 um, development of the, of the pattern should stop at a certain time in history. You know what I'm trying to say? And they, but they, you should keep developing. And that's what kept me wanting to, it, just to keep it interesting, if nothing else, but also because they, th- there's materials out there that are probably more effective than some of the traditional materials. Some of the traditional materials are still effective, but, you know, I like to always just keep trying new things. It keeps the sport interesting for me as opposed to just tying the same fly over and over and over for forever, you know. Sure. And, and you know, I know you're, 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 people think of you in the soft tackle world as an innovator and you've kind of, you've kind of meshed the traditional and the new. And how does that work mm-hmm. for you? Or do you see a new material and you're say, gee, I think this is an application or do you have a fishing problem that you're trying to solve? How do those new ideas kind of come up? And I know it may not be one way all the time, but I think our l- listeners would love to know kind of how that creative right. process works. Well, um, so well, basically for me, it's, it's just about like imitating the, the flies more appropriately. I mean, if it's a material I'm going to use or a way I'm going to fish the fly, I'll design the fly to be fished in a different way. You know, for instance, if I want it to sink faster, I might not necessarily weight it, but I might tie it sparser or use a material that'll allow it to cut through the water better, you know, a smoother material as opposed to a real buggy fur or something like that. Um, but I, I'm trying to um, match specific life stages more and more with my flies. In other words, I'm trying to have them be able to look at it and say, I know what that is, as opposed to just say, looking totally impressionistic. Now, if I'm just um, like nymph, uh, prospect nymphing or something like that, you know, I might have more tractor style patterns. But as I fish more waters that are more technical and it's more match the hatch fishing, which I find myself doing more and more every year because I like the challenge of it. I know that my flies need to be more, not necessarily realistic, but look more realistic to the fish. In other words, they don't have to be like anatomically realistic, but they have to look like the other hundred other flies that are in front of them on these fertile streams like that. Um, so they need to behave like the naturals and, you know, look like them, but still have life and some kind of not just static, um, no movement. They need some movement. Even if you're dead drifting them, you know, sometimes like a dun will dead drift, but its legs will be moving. Sometimes duns will flap on the surface as they're trying to dry their wings, you know, but you know, you can still dead drift the fly, but the materials you create the fly with can move while you're fishing it. And you know, I'm trying to say, or you can have the uh, materials activated by more active retrieves, but either way, there's still life in both ways of fishing the fly. 
Yeah, and I know too that you've sort of been a pioneer in thinking about fishing the entire water column with soft tackles. And I guess maybe before we go there, we ought to say that we're really kind of talking about you know what people think of as spiders, and then you know winged wets um, and flimps. But you know, how did you kind of come up with that progression, and you know why would an angler want to adopt that approach in their and their fishing? Um, well. So, like I said, you know, first my a lot of my fly tying was just nymphing. I mean, uh, fly fishing was nymphing, or or perhaps you know, shallow water uh, wet fly fishing, um, just under the surface. But as um, I went through my fly tying and my fly fishing, I wanted to create more patterns that had like incorporating soft tackles into more of the life cycles. So you know, so basically, I've applied it to every life stage of every pretty much important, um, um, trout stream species in the country. Um, but they all have movement in my flies. And, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is when I'm, when I, when I fish my flies, I don't necessarily just want to fish, be limited to soft tackles as being a wet fly, you know what I mean? Or, or have them be limited to a nymph. If I have a, a spinner, I can put a soft tackle collar on a spinner and fish it like dead drift and then pull it underwater and then give it a mend and dead drift it like a sunken spinner. And a lot of people don't think about fishing sunken spinners because they, you know, they think you just have to fish spinners on the surface, but you know, if they don't get eaten by a fish, they're eventually going to sink and be available to the fish. And that applies to terrestrials as well. You know, I mean, I'll fish my, my soft tackle terrestrials as a dry fly, dead drifted and then I'll pull them underwater and fish them as a sunken terrestrial, you know, like ants and grasshoppers and beetles. And, um, so, you know, it's, the idea is just to be able to cover all the bases and not be limited and then have to switch to, um, a different style of fly, I guess, or, um, you know, different, um, philosophy of fishing, you know what I'm trying to say? Like terrestrial should only fish this way and spinners fish this way and wet flies fish this way. I think you can kind of, kind of blend that together and, and not have these dividing lines between all that kind of stuff. Yes. It really sounds like you take more of a system approach and that's kind of how you've built, Mm -hmm. built your system out. Does that sound? sound Yeah. Well, it's a, it's, it is, it is. And it's a philosophy of uh, almost like a confidence factor because I know that my, my, my flies look, you know, it's a, it's a knowing of, of the, the attractiveness of the fly to the fish, just, just, just from that they've worked so many times before, you know, but then I don't have to cut off my mind and stop, start thinking a different way of fishing. You know what I'm trying to say? I mean, it all kind of is kind of like the idea of the life of the fly, whether I'm fishing a dead drift or with action, but it still has life in both, both, both ways. And, um, I don't have to like, categorize each thing into a specific kind of um traditional way of doing it you know and so it opens it it kind of makes it more of a you know an approach to my a holistic approach to the whole thing and and knowing that my so basically you know all my all my flies have soft tackle collars incorporated in one way or another and they're not always at the front of the fly you know they're not always right behind the hook eye um sometimes i'll put the the hackle collar, like in the mid thorax or in the, even in the middle of the fly, depending on where the natural, how, how the, how that life stage appears in the natural setting. Um, for instance, like, um, stonefly nymph, you know, I don't really put my, um, my soft hackle collar at the front of the, 
at the front of the fly because the, the legs are coming out at the thorax. So it's, you know, it's where I'm placing my materials to give the idea of what that pattern is supposed to be. Very interesting. And I know, and you know, as we kind of talk about this a little bit more, you know, you, you really kind of came up with the idea of a soft tackle dry fly. And why don't you tell folks what they are and how you came up with that idea? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. Well, the first, um, the way I came up with it was by watching the bugs, really. Um, I was fishing on the Beaverhead River and, and right below the dam is, is these are these flats right right there at the parking lot. There's a boat launch right there. Anyway, there's these flats and a lot of midges hatch there. A lot of midges are egg laying there. And I was watching these bugs and they're pretty big, like size 18 chartreuse midges that come off there a lot. They're pretty big for a midge. But um, I captured a couple of them. I noticed they had egg sacs on them. And, you know, so I was thinking to myself, well, what's happening to these spinners or these egg layers after they're done drifting or they're, they're sinking underwater. So I got the idea for the idea of fishing it dead drift in the first half of the presentation and then, you know, mending it and letting it drift underwater throughout the second half of it dead drifted like a sunken spinner. So, but I still wanted to have a soft tackle collar on it to give it the appearance of, of, of legs fluttering, even if I'm dead drifting the fly movement, that is, um, even though it's not alive, it's still, the spinners will still move and undulate and even under the water. So I actually tied up uh, some soft tackle um, dry fly spinners there for the first time. And that was the first place I fished them and I did pretty well. So I figured, well, this is, this is something here. And basically how I do my soft. So basically it's two life stages in one presentation for like mayfly duns. You're going to imitate, um, the uh, mayfly done on the first half of the presentation, dead drifted. Then you pull it underwater and you can fish the emerger on the sunken part. And, you know, you can have it rise or whatever. And uh, you can do the same thing with a spinner, fish it dead drift, then mend it, and then sit, fish it as a sunken spinner on the second half of the presentation. And caddis can be the same thing. You know, an adult caddis, you maybe with a shuck on it, you fish it dead drift, then you pull it underwater and merge it on the second half. So you can see the idea of fishing two life stages in one presentation. And um, so the wings, I the wings when I do my so basically they're dry flies, but um, they the wings are the wings can be made of like CDC or deer hair or even like the EP trigger point fibers that I use sometimes, which is a synthetic that doesn't absorb water. But um, I tie them. You know, I'm sure you've seen how they look. That basically, my wing goes back over the back of the fly at a 45 degree angle, and so um, you know they're not like comparadon wings, or they're not they're not parachute wings. They're back over the back, so that when you pull it underwater, you know it's still the wing is still swept back over the fly like an emerging insect. Yet it still will ride on the surface as a dry fly if you want it to. Sure. And, and since you've kind of got this two level, um, approach when you fish the fly, um, are you having to, uh, dry the fly after every presentation or are you able to dry the fly off um, just by false casting? Usually false casting. And so I don't really treat it with a float unless, you know, the fish are just totally taking duns or something like that. And, you know, and if they are, I won't fish the second half as, as a subsurface presentation part of it. If they're just taking surface flies and I observe them taking that, you know, you got to watch the fish. And if you see the rise form on the surface and it's not an emerging rise form, um, then I, then I might just treat the wing or whatever, but I'll just fish it on the surface and I won't worry about the second half of the drift. But, but if I don't treat the wing, I can fish it 
both subsurface or on the surface, you know. Do you have a preferred float? And I mean, I imagine you're probably using like silica powder for CDC, but what do you, what do you like to use if you need to use a floatant? Mm, you know, I don't, I don't, like I said, if I do use a floatant, which is, is semi-rare, but that's maybe 20% of the time, but, um, I just use gink to be honest with you and not on the CDC, but on the, on the deer hair, the deer hair floats, you know, or on, on the, um, EP trigger fibers, but I just use gink. I've been using it for years. So I just, very sparsely put it on the wing part of it and then set the fly in the water so that the bottom half isn't, I don't treat the whole fly with it. You know, I just do the wing and, and perhaps the top of the hackle collar, Gotcha. but the bottom half will float that sit down in the water, uh, surface, you know? Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about kind of this two staged approach on the surface, but can you maybe, uh, briefly talk about the progression from stream bottom, you know, up to the top of the water column and kind of, how you change your fly design and how you change your presentation as you move up the water column? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like if I'm nymphing, you know, basically I'm going to either do one of two riggings when I'm nymphing, I'm either going to put like a, um, come off a point fly with a lighter weight fly. And this will allow that lighter weight fly to kind of have a jigging action to it. But the problem with that method is sometimes you'll get a strike on the, on the, on the, on the, um, dropper you know off the off your point fly and you won't feel it as well because you're feeling the point fly hitting the rocks on the stream bed so normally how i like to fish is um put the heaviest fly on the point fly and put droppers up the leader in other words um put them above my blood knots which i tie my own leaders and so each blood knot is a stop for a dropper basically and um so if i'm just like prospect nymphing and i want to fish all levels of the water column i can fish you know, two or three flies and cover, cover three levels that way where my lightest fly is my top fly. My middle weight fly is the middle fly and the heaviest fly is the point fly. And what that system does is allows you to feel out to that point fly and any one of those flies that gets a strike on it, you're going to feel it immediately. And I'm not, I'm not fishing these with a tight, you know, tight line, not necessarily tight line. I call it semi, semi slack uh, line leader control where I can feel the strike, but I'm not dragging the flies. And yet there's not a lot of slack in the, in the whole system either. So basically fish nearly set themselves. It's not, it doesn't take much, but just a slight, uh, lift of the rod tip to set the hook on these fish. So, you know, and this is for, for prospect nymphing, you can cover those three levels. And as you find fish, if you find them all taking that heavy bottom fly, you can maybe change your middle or upper flies to heavier flies and then fish just all three flies deep. But if you're finding fish taking the top fly more often, then maybe you want to switch out your bottom two flies to lighter weight flies and fish just under the surface there. And it's a way of finding the fish there are that day. If, if they're taking random, some are taking the bottom, some are taking, you know, then I'll just continue to fish the three columns the whole day. Sure. And, so that's kind of for nymphing, but as things get more technical and more sight fishing comes involved, I'll take off those prospecting flies and just go to single flies and, you know, fish the level that I know that, that the fish are, are feeding at. Yeah. It, yeah. And it sounds like you like to weight your flies and that you don't use split shot or anything, any kind of weight yeah. on the line. Not, not normally because with the, with the combination of a heavy point fly, even a tungsten bead or something like that, you know, and, and with, if you're fishing three flies if, with the addition of the other two flies, the whole system has a weight in itself. It has a, it has a way of, of weighting itself. And, um, 
you know, then, then when you add like mending, either stack mending or hump mending or something like that to allow the flies to sink, to set up for your, um, basically where you're trying to, you know, target the fish, you normally don't need a lot of split shot and the split shot, if you do use it, um, you know, only in the, in the heaviest water circumstances would I ever need to use it. But if you do use it, you're going to, there are times when you'll feel the split shot, it'll create that hinge between your, your point fly and your first dropper, middle dropper. Um, and, um, you know, you won't feel the point fly as well that way. So I try not to use it. Yeah. If I don't have to. Yeah. It sounds like you probably don't use an indicator either, right? I don't No, I don't. And, um, I don't use an indicator, you know, the, I've never used, I've really never used one. So I guess I've, I've, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> it would probably be harder for me to try to use one, but, but I find that, well, first of all, an indicator can actually cause drag in certain situations where, where you have like heavy, fast water and it's semi deep, maybe four, four, four feet or so deep, maybe deeper. And then you have that fast water at the surface and that bottom that stream bed water is going slower. And so your fly should be drifting down at that stream bed because probably the fish are going to be, most of them are going to be deep anyway because of the, the slower water and, you know, allows them to save their energy. So what happens with an indicator is you have that fast water at the top, pulling that strike indicator faster than the bottom, you know, water is running and it's actually dragging your fly faster than it should be drifting at the bottom there. So that's one disadvantage to it. The other thing is um, you can't follow the, um, the stream undulations as the stream shallows up or gets deeper, um, your fly is suspended at a certain level. And if it gets shallow, you know, your fly could basically run across the bottom and that that'll create uh, slack in your, in your leader there between your strike indicator and your fly and you'll miss strikes that way, which is ironic, or it can lift the fly off the stream bed if it drops off and gets deeper because it's suspending it at a certain level. So basically, without using an indicator, I can follow the stream bed undulations and depth changes just by lowering and uh, raising my rod tip and or mending, things like that. But following it in my mind's eye where that where that fly is and knowing what depth it should be at by the way I'm fishing it. Got it. And do, do you put any kind of like high visibility uh, mono or some type of cider in your system? Or are you really watching nope. kind of the, nope. the just the... So, it's a, it's a semi, it's a semi. So my, my presentations, there's a couple of things. If I want to get the fly deep and it's, you know, faster water, I may have to do some mending when I first present the fly to the water with either a stack mend or a hump mend to let that fly system, you know, sink to depth. And then I'm setting up for maybe an across stream or slightly across and down or slightly maybe up and across, but depending on where I'm targeting, I'm setting up for that depth by my, by the beginning of my cast. And then I, when I, you know, my fly reaches that point where I'm targeting, it's at the right depth, you know what I mean? And so when it gets to that, that point, I have a semi slack line leader connection there where I can feel the strikes, but it's not, there's, it's a dead drift. You know, it's a fine balance between dead drift and, and slack. So there's nothing to really watch. You'll feel the strike, got but it. I'm not dragging the fly either. Got, got it. So it's a balanced system, you know? Got it. And yeah. So, yeah. And so it would be great if you could walk through maybe your preferred kind of line leader and rod setup for, uh, fishing nymphs and fishing dries. I think that'd be really interesting to learn more about that. Okay. Well, um, so basically 
it depends on, you know, again, if I'm doing um, prospect nymphing or if I'm doing, um, you know, specific targeting of, of sighted fish. But if I'm doing prospect nymphing, I normally use um, like a nine foot five weight rod is, or sometimes I use a 10 foot four weight, but I like to have a long rod so I can hold it over the current and, you know, manipulate these flies and set it up for the thing we just talked about, which is that line leader balance, semi-slack line leader uh, presentation. So I, I like to use a double taper when I'm prospecting or I'm nymphing, I like to use double taper lines because I can mend past 30 feet better. So if there's more than 30 feet out of line, I'm not back into the running line and I can still keep mending into my, you know, to keep mending to allow the fly to sink. I can, uh, I also use a system called the, uh, uh, figure eight line retrieve, which I actually use it to feed line out into my, you know, thing, which a lot of people think of the figure eight as a retrieve system, but you can actually feed line in to prolong a dead drift by just opening your fingers and pointing them out through the rod guides and it'll allow the line to be swept off your fingers and then you can retrieve it back on. But what I'm trying to say is when you get past 30 feet, that double taper really comes into play to let me keep mending out or slowing the fly down. And then after that, for prospect nymphing, I'll normally use like a 12 foot, the knotted leader, which is important for my droppers, as I talked about earlier, because each one of those blood knots is a stop for a dropper. And my droppers, I do a little differently. I use Duncan, I call it, they're called Duncan loop droppers. And it's kind of hard to explain it, but they're basically an open Duncan loop with, you know, the tag. And then I can tighten it against my, um, my leader and just slide it up the leader wherever I want a dropper to be above, above a blood knot. And then that stop is the blood knot. And so these droppers are two or three flies on my leader. Usually, as we talked about a minute ago from prospecting. And so that's kind of like the uh, setup for the, um, for the nymphing as it gets more technical if i'm fishing dry fly like you know, on the river like hat creek or the henry's fork and on the Harriman ranch and it's pretty much you know sight fishing for specific fish and i'm fishing really only dry flies and not many many subsurface flies i'll normally fish to a weight or switch to a weight forward line just to get a better you know ability to cut through the wind and because i'm not doing tons of mending past 30 feet either you know and then I'll use a longer leader, like maybe a 17 or 18 foot knotless leader at that point, because I'm not using any droppers. And I want to just have a total um, smooth casting system. Another thing I'll do is um, my line leader connection. I, I like to use the uh, super glue connection because there's no knot there at all. There's no hinging. It's basically just like from your fly line straight out to your fly there's just a transition, a smooth transition. And when you, when you're using like a 17, 18 foot leader and you want to land that fish, you also got to bring it through the rod guides. And that helps a lot to have that super glue line leader connection there. So those are a couple of ways I, I approach it differently. So what I know, what I'm saying here is it depends on the water I'm fishing and where I'm fishing is depending on the setup I'll choose, whether it's going to be a dry fly only day, or if it's going to be more of a nymphing type situation stream, and then I'll, I choose that based on that, you know. Got it. And when you're doing the nymphing, how long do you generally like your tags to be? <clears throat> um, the, oh, the, off the droppers? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they're four inches or less. And I use, um, like Rio PowerFlex 4X is pretty much just the only thing I use for all my droppers because it's the right combination between 5X's to limp 
and uh, 3x is a little bit too stiff actually. So I use the Rio Power Flex 4x, just monofilament, no no fluoro needed, just that. And then I'll I'll create those Duncan loops ahead of time normally, and I'll carry them in like my vest, just like in a Ziploc bag. I'll have them made up, so I'm not having to rig, you know, I'm not having to tie the um, droppers on stream. And I can just have them pre-made. Saves time on the water, which is valuable time. Yeah, sure. It, it, it I completely get that, right? Because you just basically drop the open dumping loop over the end of your fly line and bring it up yep. and tie it off. Yep. Yeah. And, and the other thing about that is you can say like you're, you're nymph fishing and then a hatch comes off or you just want to fish a dry fly or something like that for a little while. It's easy to take them off without having to cut your leader up, you know. And what's even easier, though, after the hatch is over to go back to dropper dropper fishing by just sliding them up and pulling them tight you know what i mean you don't have to rebuild blood knots and also as you get up you can really separate your flies to longer you can separate your flies further apart in other words if you're using a 12 foot leader you could have your point fly and then a fly six foot up your leader whereas if you're trying to do it with a blood knot or something that blood knot monofilament is going to be way too thick if you were just trying to use the static blood knot as a dropper yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it, for kind of people that haven't fished soft tackles a lot, you know, there's a there's a fair amount of I guess change in presentation technique. How would you suggest people that are interested uh, in fishing soft tackles kind of start to work it into their fishing routine and see if it's something that they like to fish that way? If they are, you know, get the mm-hmm. positive reinforcement of the increased catch rate, what would you suggest for just kind of your average angler to kind of start to work it into his system? Well, I guess um I guess you could the easiest way to do it would just be to um to just use soft tackle nymphs really is it just fish them like you probably are you're fishing your nymphs right now. I mean, you know, that's the easiest way. You don't have to change any of your, you know, high stick nymphing. You can just, you know, basically if you're doing that, you're just changing your fly out. You're not changing basically the method you don't even have to do like any of the the license ring lifts or anything like that or retrieves or anything you can just do high stick nymphing with just changing the fly to incorporating a soft tackle in your nymphs you know and you know you can take really any nymph and do that you can (laughs) you know what i mean you could take a uh you know and, and when you think about prince nymphs that's an example they're normally tied with normally a stiffer collar but instead of tying a prince nymph with, you know, the, what is it, the rooster collar you use normally, tie it with a partridge, uh, partridge collar. It's going to give a little more action. And so you can, really the easiest way is just to incorporate it, you know, you don't have to change your style completely if you don't want to at first, but change just the way your flies are built a little bit. And when you're, especially if you time yourself, you know, um, you could, you know, it's, it's really hard to fish a soft tackle to fish it wrong. You know what I'm saying? As, as a, as an attractor prospecting thing. Um, it's not, it's, it's just, you know, soft tackle fishing is not difficult at first. You know, it's actually probably one of the easiest ways to the classic wet fly swing is a pretty simple method and you're just casting across stream and letting the fly, uh, drag at the end and swing across and raise up in front of the fish. And that's one of the most basic things you can do. Um, but I don't think it takes, you know, soft tackle fishing is not, like I said, it doesn't have to be in, in and own itself, like its own little thing. It can be incorporated into the rest of the fishing, which what I do with my, all my, my fly fishing is it's not its own little 
uh, niche. It's, it's the whole thing for me. So, but, and, but what I mean is it encompasses all the life cycles of, of my fly fishing. Sure. <laughs> if you will, it's hard to, it's hard to say, you know, exactly where, where you should start. You know what I mean? Just, just, just get some flies and go fish them is what I would say to that. You know, just, just start fishing them and see how they work for you. You don't have to change a lot of the present. If you know how to fish now, if you know how to nymph, um, you can start that way and, um, think about retrieves, learn about some of the action you can impart to the fly, learn about, you know, a lot of it is also studying bugs, you know, and learning about the entomology of the rising insects and the behavior. And that's really where I get into imitation of my specific life cycles and learning about how the, how the bugs work, you know, and then trying to fish my flies the way that they look. Um, who was it? It was, it was, uh, it was Dick Galland. He, he was a hack. He's a hack Creek uh, guy out in California. And he says, um, what he says is, he says, uh, think like a trout, act like a bug. <laughs> so that's kind of good to think about, right? Like you got to think like the trout is, but you got to, you think, act like a bug and that'll make your fly, you know, come alive. Nah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, as we shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the tying, you know, obviously the hackle is very important, whether it's partridge or hen or, or starling, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it's getting harder and harder to, you know, at least for me, I'm a big believer. I don't like buying natural tying materials if I can't put my hands on them, but that's getting harder and harder yeah. to do. You know, can you give some folks some tips about what they should look for when they get a chance to go in a fly shop and, uh, start picking sure. out, picking out material? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. You know, it depends on I mean, some of the most common materials I use are 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 not the hardest to find. I mean, um there's a lot of English materials that you can that are harder to find, like um for instance, like woodcock and jackdaw and coot and things like that. But really I really only use like hens, you know, grouse, quails, partridge, um really materials that are not that hard to find, but there's a lot of variables to those materials. Um, you know, hen comes in a million different colors and, and you can get modelings and especially with the, um, the hen, the hen, not the non-genetic stuff, but you know, the genetic things are, are, are good too, the whiting and the mets. But the thing about it is you want to know how much, how much web you want in your fly. You want to know if you want a little bit stiffer fly for like a little stiffer hackle for like a dry fly that might give it a little bit of floatability yet still have movement to the hackle collar. Or if you want it to be just a nymph that is going to be, you know, no floatability, but just total soft webbiness and action to your hackle collar. And so with things like, you know, partridge, you're going to have a good, good web on most game bird feathers. But when it comes to hen, you want to really look at how much web there is, look at the stem of the, of the feather and see how far that web extends out to the tips. And you can see that clearly because you'll see the webby center to the feather and the further out it gets to the tips, the, the more softer that feather is going to become. Um, India hen is pretty much is webbier than the genetic hen that you get from whiting and mets. And that's mostly just due to the genetics of the breeding from the roosters that's been trying to breed for the dry fly that's been getting into the hen, you know, it makes it a little bit stiffer, but the, the India hen is very soft. Um, partridge. I, 
Now, so your question is what to look for in a fly shop. Well, don't buy the don't buy the uh, packaged feathers. Don't you know? Try to buy the skins if you can. You're going to get a lot more useful feathers on them, and you know the quality will be better, and you'll have more choice. You want to, and you won't have to look through the whole bag of feathers to find the specific feather you're looking for, which is always fun. But um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is just it's good to have your eyes on things. I actually have been some of the things you can buy nowadays is and and fly shops have a have a decent amount of choice at times, but some of the hunters out west are now selling their feathers on eBay actually, and like around this time of year, actually in like January and February, you can find a lot of good partridge on there, and so um, I buy a lot of partridge, and you can see the actual feather you're getting. And they sell a lot of them. They're not just selling one at a time. So, you know, they know what they're doing and they, they treat them, they, they tan them well. And they're, um, so I've gotten some nice partridge that way. Um, like Bob white quail, California quail. The other thing about it is calling the fly shop and talking to somebody there and seeing if they know what they're talking about. And then just, you know, seeing what they have, um, um, blue ribbon flies in West Yellowstone is really good for something like that. Um, Feathercraft in St. Louis is good. There's a place in England called Cooks Hill Fly Tying that sells a lot of a lot of soft tackle birds. Um, and so, you know, it's knowing what you need before you go you go look for it. A lot of it is that, and knowing what you're looking for. Um, I tend to buy um, a lot of my. So, so my flies have, I know what kind of feather I'm looking for for each fly. If it's a soft tackle dry fly, I'm probably going to use a, a little bit stiffer hackle like I talked about, either a whiting or a metz. Um, but if it's a nymph and I'm using partridge, you know, there you go. But it's just knowing what, how you want that fly to behave before you, you even get to the material choice, you know. And then once you get there, you know what you're looking for. Sure. And, and I know, like, for example, you know, if you read your books, I mean, you tie with a ton of different stuff. Some of it's really hard to get. If you're starting out, you know, what would you suggest people, you know, obviously the performance characteristics are kind of what lead the decision-making process, but, you know, if someone's starting out and they want to get one or two kinds of feathers to tie with, what would you suggest they, they'd look at? Well, I don't think, I think if there was only one feather I could use, I mean, um, uh, aside from soft tackle dry flies, because I like the the what the the hen for that, but but just for nymphs and soft tackles in general, wet flies, it'd be definitely be partridge. I mean, there's just so many different um, modeling and colors on a skin. You know, you have the gray partridge from the, up near the neck, and the bat lower back has the brown. The marginal coverts on the wings have the have the sort of modeling of brown and different colors of brown on them. So partridge, good partridge skins are really worth their weight in gold. And whenever I I see a good one, I'd go ahead and just buy it, even if I don't need it, because, you know, who knows when I will need it. So that's the other thing about buying feathers. If I go into a fly shop and I'm just looking around and I see some good feathers in there, I normally go ahead and just buy them (laughs) because, because who knows when I'll find another, you know what I mean? They're not something you can just produce, you know, on a, on a assembly line, you know, um, they're each different. And that's the other thing. Look through, you know, and this is kind of common sense, but if they have a number of skins, look through them to see how much, because, you know, every skin is a little different, has more grays in some skin, more browns in other skins. And depending on what flies you're tying and, you know, if you like gray partridge or brown partridge or whatever, then you'll know what to buy there. But 
I guess if I was just to say one thing, it'd be partridge. That's it. I mean, I still, I, they tie, you can tie small with them and there's a number of sizes of feathers on that skin. Um, and I still, I still think it's the best skin if you're willing to buy one skin, but you know, I got so many feathers in my fly tying room here that I don't know what I'd do if I only have to add one skin here. <laughs> it's like fly fishing. Yeah. yeah it's like fly I mean, tying no, survivor I mean, or something, guess, right? Yeah. What's funny is I probably got, I have enough feathers and materials except besides hooks and thread to last me definitely the rest of my life at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I won't, I won't tell anybody that so you can keep buying, fly, buying, uh, no. Skins, but right. yeah, it's kind of, you know, and it's interesting, right? Cause you say to, to start with partridge, you know, those feathers are pretty fragile and I know me included, um, you know, sometimes, you know, wrapping them can be pretty frustrating. What would you, you have some tips or tricks to kind of help minimize that frustration? Well, a couple things, I guess, like I said, going back to the skin, I buy the, buy the, buy the whole skin, don't buy the individual feathers. So, you know, the, you know, the, the thing about the also the individual feathers, they can get they can get bent and they can get in the little bags. You know, they sell them and all that. Whereas when they're on the skin, they kind of stay protected and in place and flat. The the stems stay protected and all that. Um, the other thing is, um, well, I tie it in normally by the tips, but I'll take my hackle pliers and preen back enough fibers just so I can get that tip tie in. And then you just got to be gentle, really. I mean, the first wrap is just just take it easy and get that first wrap. Once that's made, it's pretty simple. And I like to sweep back the fibers in between each wrap around the hook. That keeps the fibers, you know, spread out and swept back over, you know, back towards the back. Yeah. Also, um, with my hackle with my um, hackle pliers, I I use the uh, TMCO hackle pliers which are just those black teardrop shape ones. And uh, they make them in like a standard and a small size, but you can use both of them. Either one doesn't matter. But what I do is there's that little rubber, that little rubber, yellow rubber band on them. And I like to take that off. That way I can just get the, use the, you know, it's just the tips of the uh, hackle pliers. And that lets me hold onto that feather better. And I use that when I'm, when I'm first preening back those fibers too, I'll take my hackle pliers and clamp them on that tip so that I can preen back the fibers and then t- have that tip tie in. And then I go over and I'll wrap it with them too. Got it. And it, are there, I know you say you generally prefer to tie the feathers in by their tip, but are there times when you tie the, the feather in by its base? Um, there are a few times. And normally with things like partridge, no. Um, because the, the feather, the stem gets progressively pretty dense, pretty fast as it goes down towards the aftershaft. But, but with like hen, genetic hen, especially things like that, the feather, the stem stays pretty thin and and pliable throughout. And so in those cases with like maybe hen cape, not with hen saddle, but with a hen cape, I'll, I'll take the uh, feather tied in by the, the bottom of the stem and you know by the base and wrap it that way and the other the reason i do that is because those feathers the, the hen capes genetic especially are not sometimes not that soft and we talked about the web extending out to the tips a minute ago but the web actually gets as you go down the feather the web actually extends out further so if you can tie it in by that base you're going to actually get a softer feather out of that hen than if you tie it in by the tip that depends again what you want your fly to be imitating 
You know what I mean? If you want it to have a little bit of better flotation yet not stiff, you'll tie it in by the tip for like a soft tackle dry fly. But if you're imitating like a flint or an emerging um, mayfly, maybe you'll tie it in by the base and use those lower aftershaft near those near those fibers that are really soft. And but the stem lets you do that. So it's up to the amount of how how soft that stem and how thin that stem is if you can tie it in by the base or not. And also the fly you're trying to come up with, you know. And is that kind of the same guideline about kind of the performance characteristics drive your decision about whether to strip half the fibers off of a a feather or not? Or do you have a different rule of thumb? Yeah. Well, I, I only strip, and really it's only with the hen I do that. I don't do it with a, with partridge or anything. I only do it with a hen sometimes. Um, and there's a couple of situations I'll do it when I use a hen cape and I want a really sparse, sparse hackle, uh, you know, even less than like what one turn would create, you know what I'm saying? With both sides of the feather, I'll strip off one side and make a turn or I can even make a turn and a half and still get less than a, than one turn with both sides of the fibers on the, on the feather. And so I'm getting a very sparse soft tackle dry fly um, hackle collar with just like imitating a few legs coming off the fly to imitate like that mayfly done. So that's one situation where I'll strip, strip off the half the, half the side of the fibers. And the other is when I'm using um, like a hen, hen uh, saddle. And those can be, those fibers can be very almost thick and, and, and they don't like to wrap well and stay in place. So I'll strip off one side of those and it just takes away half of the, you know, what I'm trying to, uh, deal with when I'm wrapping the feather and they stay in place better. They, when I'm wrapping each wrap in, in consecutively in front of each other, the fibers stay better swept back than if you have both sides to it. Got it. And in terms of hook selection, can you kind of walk folks through how you think about that as you, you know, look at flies to fish towards the stream bottom all the way up the water column? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I like to match the hooks to the shape of the life species I'm trying, life cycle species I'm trying to match. And, you know, so like, you know, most times it's either like a straight, straight hook for nymphs and things like that. Sometimes I'll actually bend the hook if I want to get like a swimming nymph um, appearance to the fly and to, to bend the hook, like I'll, I'll put the hook in my vise and then I'll just take forceps at the front up near the thorax and just bend it up slightly. And it creates that, that lifting of the thorax. It makes it look like the fly is like swimming, like the abdominal swimming of mayfly nymphs. Um, but to achieve that, you have to use like a, a lower carbon hook. And so I'm not really tied to a specific uh, manufacturer. Like I only fish Tiemco nymph hooks. Or I, I fish I fish uh, hooks that allow me to create the fly I want to create. And so using a low carbon hook like the old Mustad or these even these eagle claws I have are pretty low carbon. And because if you use a high carbon, you can't bend them. It'll just they're so brittle, and you try to bend it, they'll break. So I try to choose hooks to, you know, imitate to get the appearance of the fly I'm trying to, to imitate. If I'm, if I don't need to bend the hook, it doesn't really matter. But if if, it, if I am, it does. Um, it's just mostly about choosing the shape of the fly. Um, I don't really, um, care if it's a uh, specific, like 
brand, like I said, but I do like the Tiemco 100s for dry flies. and The Mustad R30 is a nice dry fly hook. And um, even the Eagle Claw L59, which is a little cheaper hook, some people think, but I, I like them. They're fine. And um, so I don't really think about the manufacturer or, but I think about the shape of the hook. I like to, you know what I'm trying to say for the, for imitating that life stage. I want to know if, what that life stage looks like at the time, at that, at that time and place that I'm trying to imitate it on the water and then work backwards from there to try to find the hook shape that works best to imitate that. Got it. And do you also try to vary the, um, the gauge of the wire to, to kind of help you adjust weight yeah. uh, after you've gotten yeah, the profile that you want. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So for instance, you know, the, the, the heavier weight nymph hooks, like, like I said, these Eagle claws, they're, they're, they're made in America. They're a nice hook. Um, a lot of people don't think about them, but, but they're, they're actually a nice bend. They, the bend goes, it's a perfect bend. It goes, you know, the, the shank is, uh, the, it's a straight shank. And then it, when it, bends it's it doesn't have that sprout bend or anything so you can get a complete long top shank to tie on and it's also a heavier gauge wire which uh, which allows me not to have to weight it as much you know um and then there's another hook that i like if i want a lighter weight um like the umpka 201 is a nice surface film emerger hook because it's a thin gauge sort of um uh, a scud type hook, but it's not your heavy scud. It's a, it's got the curvature, but it's a light gauge wire. So that's going to allow me to fish that surface film better. So yes, the weight of the gauge of the wire is actually very, very important. And that's um, probably sec, you know, that's probably primary is shape and shape and gauge of wire, shape and gauge of wire and size, you know, are my primary concerns. And then I go find the manufacturer that has that hook that I'm looking for. Got it. So, and it's, it's interesting, you know, um, I just pulled out your most recent book as I was preparing for this interview. And I mean, it's uh, folks, if you have, if you don't have a copy, uh, fly fishing soft tackles is a really phenomenal resource. Um, I guess you published it, what in 2017, Alan? Yeah, it came out in the beginning of yeah. 2017. Yeah, and 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 for my listeners, you know, it's it's really great because it's 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 um respects the history of the soft tackle, but it gives you a ton of tying and fishing information and I guess before that, you had published tying and fishing soft tackle nymphs in in 2007 or so. And kind of along that path, when did you decide that it was time to update uh your your 20 2007 book? <clears throat> well, it kind of came about just by just just by the places I was fishing more and more. I was I was going to these, you know, the, there's a progression of the fly fisherman where, you know, you want to catch a lot of fish and then you want to you want to start to catch more technical fish and because you know you feel like that's more of a challenge. And so I was fishing these more technical waters out west and Henry's Fork and Delaware River in the northeast and Silver Creek and places like that where you really couldn't just fish an attractor style fly. You really had to have a species specific pattern. And so that's kind of where my second book came about from is, is all the, you know, is, is imitating each life stage of each important um, trout bug in North America, you know, caddis, mayfly, midge, stoneflies, and, and life stages that are important, terrestrials, scuds, everything. Um, so it was basically just the the places I was fishing that required, you know, 
better flies, if you will. I mean, really, and better presentations and better, better um, observation of the water and the fish and everything. But the fly was was a lot of it, and so I tried to cover that in my new book. Um, and you know, I'm always working on new flies and presentation methods and things like that. So it was time to to unleash it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's it's an incredibly uh, well written, well photographed, and very dense book. How long did it take you to write it? Um, it took about six and a half years. It took about six and a half years. Um, you know, and it, it was, it was, um, it was something that I, um, you know, writers always coming up with, with ideas as they're fishing, you know, as you're writing a book, it seems like you're always adding things to it. Cause, um, you have maybe a new idea that, you know, I, I'm, like I said, my, my evolution of my stuff doesn't stop. I mean, I'm thinking every night I sit down, I think of how I can, make a little variation in something or try something different. And if it works, I keep it. If it doesn't, I don't. And so that's kind of just how I approach fly fishing. I don't, I don't stop at one point and just do that forever. I try to keep evolving it. And, um, you know, that's just for myself. And then I, and that's my own way of doing it. And then I, I just, uh, let, I let other people know about it once I figure things out. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah. So, so, you know, you're, you're working on it for six and a half years. I mean, how does, what does that writing process look like? I mean, are you kind of going on a trip and you solve a problem and you write a piece and you're kind of meshing it together or do you say, oh gosh, I'm going to really write for a week and then put it down for a month or. Um, well, you know, what I really normally do is I, I don't, when I, when I first, I don't start writing a book until I got a lot of stuff to say. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't, I don't like put it together piece by piece. Like just, I, 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 I'll fish for a few years and develop some more things and then I'll start writing it down again. And then once I do that, I just start to outline it. And then I, I work outwards inwards, basically kind of like building a house, I guess you'd say. I have all the ideas I want to put out there. And then I put the details that that I know, you know, into the book, but the first thing is I build the frame of it and then I work down into the details, but I know the details are just what I'm saying is when I'm writing, I first put out everything I want to say. So I don't forget something. And then I work down deeper and deeper and deeper. Got it. So, so, uh, so this, so this most recent book came out at the beginning of 2017. Um, are you working on any projects right now you want to share? Well, right now I'm just going to be fishing as much as I can over the next few years. And like I said, things come out when I'm ready. I mean, I, I don't force them, but I'm, I'm accumulating ideas the whole time. And then when I get enough, I put it out, you know? And so there'll something be coming, you know, in a few years probably, but for now it's just fishing as much as I can traveling, fishing new waters. And, you know, another thing about all this is, you know, I like to know that my flies work on a d- different number of waters. I don't, I want them to be pretty much, um, not universal, but, you know, be able to be adaptable to any water you fish. Um, and so, and so I like to test them out on a different, you know, a, a lot of even the, t- the most technical waters and things like that. Um, so that's how I know that they're sound methods and, you know, it's also fun to be able to travel and fish places and test them out. So. And the field testing is fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, believe it or not, we're getting close to daylight savings time. So the it's going to be easier to fish later in the day. 
Um, right. I know show season is winding down, but do you have any show appearances or club appearances that you want to let folks know about? Um, I don't really have much. I'm, do, well, I'm doing a couple like private clubs here in T- Trout Unlimited in Georgia in April and June, but, um, you know, I'm available for presentations for clubs if anybody ever wants to get in touch with me and things like that. But mostly my spring is and summer are looking like a lot, a couple of trips, um, coming up here in the, in the, in the summer and then one in the fall. So yeah, I'm just looking to get back to fishing. It's been a, it's been a wet winter down here. So haven't been a lot of fishing going on really. Yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. But hopefully the summer spring dries up a little bit. Yeah, but uh, we'll probably end up with a drought this summer, as the way things seem to go. But how how can uh, how can folks find you on the internet if they want to book you um, for a presentation or learn more about your books? Mm-hmm. So my 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 website is alanmcgee.blogspot.com. And you got to do a forward slash at the end of that. alanmcgee.blogspot.com forward slash. Awesome. And I'll drop that in the show notes too. And, um, you know, I've known Alan for a long time and if you have a chance to book him for your club, uh, or have a chance to run into him at a show, you should definitely do it. Cause you'll learn a lot. Um, Alan, I appreciate you spending some time with me tonight. Um, everybody, if you like this episode, I'd, I'd love it. If you give me a review in iTunes, um, to help me out with my advertisers, it's always great. If you can subscribe in the podcast of your choice, everybody tight lines and have a good evening. Thanks again, Alan. I really appreciate it. Okay, thanks everybody. I appreciate it.